Kaseya Bust, Apple Mega Patches, Happy Pie Week, and the burning question, does taking a whole country offline weaken or improve cybersecurity? All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the Naked Security Podcast, everybody. Like last week, I am Duck, not Doug, and I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Chester Wisniewski. Hello, Chet. Hello, Duck. Uh, Thanks for having me back again. We'd better crack on because we've managed to choose a, a lot of topics for this week. So let's start with the first one. This is a Naked Security article from the 11th of March, 2022, and the title is Alleged Kaseya Ransomware Attacker Arrives in Texas for Trial. Very dramatic indeed. Tell us all about this, Chester. Well, uh, sounds like this uh, guy w- was Ukrainian and perhaps was, uh, I don't know if he was going on a holiday or what purpose he had, but he ended up going to Poland where they, they picked him up on a presumably a sealed indictment or arrest warrant of some sort, and he's being extradited to the States. But I think what's interesting about it for a lot of us is that he was wrapped up in one of the larger, more um, marquee, if you will, ransomware attacks of 2021, the one against the Kaseya remote access solution. Chester, just to be clear, this bust happened in November 2021, before the invasion of Ukraine. And I'd imagine he would probably have been a person of interest to Poland or to pretty much any other European Union country or the UK, regardless of where he'd entered Poland from. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's clear this was before uh, there was any reason necessarily to make a quick escape from Ukraine. And as someone who studies cyber criminals being prosecuted as a bit of a hobby, I find it interesting to read indictments and things. This is a very usual process where there's often a sealed indictment that is issued, meaning it's not made public. So the criminal themselves are not sure that they've been identified. They may not be aware that the police are looking for them, which increases the likelihood they may visit a country who has an extradition treaty where they will be prosecuted in, uh, in a third party country like the United States. Yes, I'd imagine that if he hadn't been wanted in the US, there are probably loads of other places that would have been happy to receive him. He was alleged to be part of the whole Reville ransomware as a service scene. And it just so happened that one of the more high profile cases that he seems to have got himself involved in, if the allegations are true, is, of course, the mega leverage Kaseya attack where instead of attacking a hundred companies one at a time, they went after Kaseya software to get Kaseya to distribute the malware for them, a so-called supply chain attack. Yeah, I think anytime you're involved in a crime that large, uh, there are going to be more than a few people looking for you in many countries. And, and it's not unusual for, uh, depending where you're apprehended, for example, for multiple countries to take a, a whack at prosecuting you as well, as we'll talk about in a few minutes about another case. But in this case, he had allegedly asked for 70 million US dollars in order to uh, give, give up the keys for all of the victims that he impacted through that supply chain attack. That is one very expensive all-you-can-eat buffet, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> we were unable to determine at the time, did they genuinely think that everyone might pool their resources and actually come up with $77 million 
for a decryption key for everybody in one go? Or did they just figure, you know what, this is going to make a massive wave of fear and uncertainty, so let's just thumb our noses at the world? He He's ended up in Texas, but these are federal charges, aren't they? So I presume that just means that there's somebody in Texas who did get hit by this, who's prepared to come forward and say, here's some strong evidence. That's precisely it. I mean, in the United States, uh, the charges are typically brought in a jurisdiction where one of the victims was located, and they're often strategically chosen based on the experience of the prosecutor's office in that district, having experience investigating and prosecuting cyber crimes. So not all U.S. court districts have uh, equivalent experience. And so they often will pool up and figure out which jurisdictions were impacted, and then one of them will sign on to prosecute the case based on their experience prosecuting similar cases and having success. There was a cohort uh, of this guy uh, as well, who's still at large, who um, they were able to seize $6 million in in stolen assets, uh, presumably crypto coin assets from, uh, which is interesting as well, because that I think to me that puts that $70 million number in perspective a little bit, which is to say, they were able to seize more than $6 million from somebody they didn't even arrest. That's how much money they're making. And I think regularly getting these multi-million dollar ransoms emboldens them to try these audacious attacks like this. And it's nice to see somebody, at least even if it's only half uh, of the the team, um, potentially brought to justice. Yes, so we shall watch that case with interest. But he is not the only person to face a recent extradition on ransomware-related charges, is he? There's a Canadian fellow who was extradited just the other day to the US after already being given seven years in a Canadian prison for ransomware-related crimes. No, you must be referring to Sébastien Vachon Desjardins of Gatineau, Quebec. For our listeners, Gatineau is probably offend people from Quebec by saying this, but it's kind of a suburb of Ottawa, isn't it? It's just across the river from the capital. It's where lots of Canadian public servants live and work, both on the Ontario side, forgot for a moment what uh, province Ottawa was in, and uh, in Gatineau and Hull on the Quebec side. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, he was a government service worker for Public Works and Government Services Canada, uh, an IT worker. So uh, like everyone in the region, you generally, if you live there in one way or another, uh, make most of your living for most people from your government salary. But in his case, uh, they managed to seize 719 bitcoins worth 28 million US dollars when he was arrested. So I think he might have been making a little bit more lucrative career outside of government service. So he joined lots of uh, ransomware clubs, hadn't he? Yeah, he did. And, and, and many of them were known. In fact, both Revil and NetWalker in particular are known for targeting hospitals and municipal governments and things like that, uh, which are particularly impactful on a lot of communities. What I think is interesting there is he pled guilty to three of the four charges in Canada, was sentenced to seven years. I'm wondering if he's avoiding facing a jury where evidence is going to be brought forth showing things like attacking hospitals with this type of malware. And my understanding is that He's now essentially out of prison in Canada for the purpose of being extradited to the US. Now, the previous chap we were talking about will be tried federally, but in Texas. I believe he's been sent to Florida. And my understanding is that if he is found guilty, he will do his sentence in the US, then be deported back to Canada, 
where he will finish his seven years. Yeah, Sebastian's uh, temporarily on loan to the Americans so they can punish him. But when he comes back, he still has to face his sentence here in Canada. As you say, Netwalker ransomware, infamous for, not that it's nice to attack anybody with ransomware, but they seem to have developed some infamy for attacking organizations that their absolute focus is not on cybersecurity, it's on public services such as medical care. Yeah, I mean, they were quite known for targeting those types of organizations. And the visibility of that kind of disruption is greater as well. When it comes to municipal services like, you know, fire and ambulance or the ability to get treatment in an emergency room, people seem to be a little more sensitive to those types of crimes than maybe not being able to get their favorite sneakers for a week because a factory's closed. Absolutely. Well, there's another one to watch. It is a good indication that cybercriminals don't always go undetected and uninvestigated and uncharged. Two cases in one week that we're able to talk about. Let's move on from that, Chester, to our next story about the latest tranche of Apple patches that arrived. 87 CVE-numbered security holes fixed. 10 security bulletins and pretty much every Apple supported platform patched from iPhones and iPads through your watch, your tvOS, your Macs, and even an update for iTunes for Windows. I think this is an interesting update, Duck. I, I did mine on, I have a MacBook uh, Pro M1 that I got a few months ago, and uh, it was a Savelte. 5.2 gigabyte download to update that Mac. I'm really glad I don't have a data cap on my internet. <laughs> yeah, I, I have Catalina, and I noticed the update had come out just after I finished writing about Pi Day, which we'll come to next. I think that one was 2.5 gig. Uh, it all seemed to go through fine. I decided I'll just sit and let it happen, even though it was the middle of the night, because quite a lot of important things fixed, aren't there? Fortunately, none of them are what you would call zero days. I think they were all found and responsibly disclosed and fixed before they were known to the bad guys. But quite a wide range of, oh dear, you wouldn't want that to happen to you. Yeah, well, so I'd like to clarify for listeners, you said there's 10 bulletins. Typically, Apple issues a bulletin for each, say, operating system or platform that they're updating or each application that's getting an update. Correct. But what's really interesting about some of the bugs that you uh, did a great analysis of on the Naked Security article uh, are some are, in my book, way more severe than others because of their ubiquity, right? So there's a bug in WebKit that uh, three remote execution bugs in WebKit, as a matter of fact, that are fixed in this bulletin. And that's why you see so many bulletins, right? Because something like WebKit, if I find a bug in it, means I can attack 10 different Apple products, 12 different Apple products with that one bug because it's in your iPhone, it's in your Mac OS, it's in your Apple TV, and it might even be embedded in things like iTunes where it uses that code to render the album art and something about the artist that you're listening to the music with. Yes, those bugs, those particular WebKit bugs are listed in the iTunes for Windows security bulletin, which gives you an idea of, as you say, how widespread WebKit holes can be. And it's not just WebKit, of course. There are a bunch of other bugs in things like image rendering, audio and video rendering. But there's a whole load of other 
information leakage bugs. But I found those quite fascinating because some of them don't sound terribly serious on their own. But it's a great reminder that sometimes things that you take for granted in an app, sometimes apps don't quite fulfill those promises in ways that you would never have predicted in advance. Yeah, it's hard to know when these things are going to crop up also being used in combination with other things, right? Yes. We often see attackers are able to get a foothold using one kind of vulnerability, but they're kind of, they're maybe they're sandboxed. They're locked into something where they have limited access and then they try to elevate their privileges. And maybe they can do it that way, but maybe there's multiple different elevation of privilege vulnerabilities. And so being able to simply view your preferences through one of these weird information leakage flaws might be enough to go, oh, they have this one particular thing set that I know how to exploit. So now that I can see that that's there, I can go target or attack it. Sometimes, as you say, even minor information leakage bugs, they don't give away your home address or your social security number or a hash of your password, but they give enough away about your device that could make it much, much easier for the next attack to succeed. Yeah, I often think about it like, uh, would, would you really want someone to necessarily know what brand of home security system you're using if you really want protection from that system? I mean, every system has flaws and simply uh, indicating to an outsider how they may target the vulnerabilities in the system you're using seems like a bad idea. And knowing that you use WhatsApp and that there's a, a zero click vulnerability in WhatsApp that they can exploit might be enough to just tip you over the edge. Absolutely. You might not only leak information about you've got a particular type of product, but also how you've set it up, including some of the exceptions that you may have baked in, knowing that they reduce your security a bit, but only if the bad guys figure out what they are. And th to think of our first story, that was actually a major factor in the Kaseya ransomware attack, wasn't it? The malware the crooks unloaded on victims' computers was placed into a directory that was specially chosen because the crooks knew that on almost every computer, that directory would be specially exempted from security scanning because it was a temporary working directory used by the Kaseya software. So they'd found the trusted hole in the system. And just by knowing that, it made the attack much easier and much more dramatic and much more effective when it finally happened. Yeah, we, we probably could do a whole episode of going down the rabbit hole of all the different applications that say, if this isn't working properly, turn off your antivirus, which is almost never the problem, but certainly guarantees that you're less secure. And unfortunately, that part of the Kaseya attack was a factor. Their, their official advice was to exclude a folder, which means uh, with that little bit of knowledge, the criminals have that much more of an advantage. Right. So I guess on the Apple front, it remains only for us to give a quick reminder to everyone how to check. And so if you have an iPhone or an iPad, you go to Settings, General, Software Update. If you have a Mac, it's the Apple menu, About This Mac, Software Update, dot, dot, dot. And on Windows, where you want to update iTunes, you open iTunes, Help, Check for Updates. And the article on Naked Security has all those security bulletins and the version numbers that you're looking out for. And that article you can find, it is Apple patches 87 security holes from iPhones and Macs to Windows. So much for Apple, Chester. Let's move on to, I suppose this is the closest that I'm going to manage to Doug's famous fun fact, although I'm putting it in the, in the middle of the podcast, not at the start. Uh, I would like to say to you, 
for yesterday, because we're recording this on Tuesday. Happy Pi Day, Chester. Thanks, Doc. I, uh, I, I had a quite an, an enjoyable Pi Day myself, and I, enjoyed your, I certainly enjoyed your write-up on it. If you'd like to know more about Pi and how you can make a tangential connection with cybersecurity, head to Naked Security, where we have a fun piece called Happy Pi Day. Even if you aren't in North America, I did manage to include a lesson at the end in cybersecurity because of the unbelievable number of decimal digits that Pi has now been calculated to. Uh, it is, in fact, 2 times Pi times 10 trillion. So 62 trillion, 831 billion. 853,071,796 decimal places. If you go back 10 or 20 years, that would be an almost inconceivable achievement, wouldn't it, Chester? I mean, they were using a computer that had, wait for it, a terabyte of RAM. <laughs> yeah, I, I well, yesterday afternoon, I noticed it was 1.59 p.m. on 3.14 I glanced off to the left of my desk at the aforementioned Raspberry Pi in last week's episode that has an Adafruit hat on it uh, that is, in fact, my time server. And it all just seemed to just all come together at once that it was 3.14159. And I'm looking at my time server that is a Raspberry Pi. It, it, it was an emotional moment. I don't think with a Raspberry Pi, you're likely to calculate Pi to 62 trillion decimals. <laughs> But it is a reminder that computational tasks that you might reasonably assume are as good as impossible today could become feasible, practicable, doable tomorrow. And that doesn't just apply to something as amusing, if you like, as calculating lots of decimals of pi. It does apply to things like password cracking, cryptographic strength and security, reliability of hashes and stuff like that as well. Yeah, it certainly suggests that a password like Go Red Sox 1 is probably not well chosen. And uh, even the numbers that have sounded astounding in, in your example aren't even that astounding anymore. Like one terabyte of RAM is a little bit up there, but like 600 terabytes of disk space, I looked at that and I'm like, well, you can buy 10 terabyte disks now, right? So that's only 60 hard drives. That's not even supercomputer kind of stuff. Uh, they had... 38 16 terabyte disk drives, I believe, for a mixture of swap <laughs> <laughs> and the minority for actually storing the results. Because you've got 62 million million digits to store just to keep a record of the number, just to write the result out. <laughs> and, and by the definition of pi, that's probably not very compressible either. Uh, no, basically one bit per bit. I think is the compression ratio you get. So when it comes to thinking that you're secure through the fact that they'll never be able to do that many tries, read our article on Happy Pi Day and think, wow, things that you'd never believe possible are actually, well, I wouldn't say everyday occurrences. It took 108 days of continuous calculation, but they got there in the end. So let's move on from there to something rather more serious and sad because the reason 
behind this particular story is, of course, the war in Ukraine. But that is the issue that if a country either disconnects itself or gets disconnected from the internet, as we're sort of starting to see happen with the Russian Federation, is that inevitably better for cybersecurity because it provides an inadvertent sort of barrier? Or is it actually worse because the crooks don't need that much bandwidth to be able to do bad stuff from either side of a so-called internet boundary? Where do you stand on that, Chester? Because you published an article today on Sophos News all about that. Recommend people go and read that, actually. Will Russia's war on Ukraine result in less online crime? I think the answer is we simply have no idea. And I mean, it's unprecedented in general for countries to um, remove themselves from the internet. It's, it's happened in some isolated cases in previous conflicts, uh, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, however, the uh, economies of those countries weren't as entirely dependent and uh, didn't have the ubiquity, perhaps, of communications and smartphones that the Russian Federation does. So, it, it, and certainly the Russian Federation dwarfs in population and uh, many of, you know, other isolated countries like North Korea, where internet access is quite limited. So it, I don't think we really know the answer. And there's certainly, um, there's no doubt that there's plenty of criminal groups operating out of Russia that uh, conduct cybercrime attacks often specifically against non-Russian speaking adversaries. But the other side of that, as you say, is, I mean, any access to the internet's enough access to the internet. And I think more importantly to me, Cybercrime is truly a global operation now, right? Like we just talked about a guy being arrested in Ottawa and another guy being arrested in Poland and who was from Ukraine. And then there's people in Singapore, there's people in Australia. I mean, crime is a global operation and there are thieves everywhere. And I don't know that we're going to see much of an impact reducing crime. If anything, it may increase. And I think it's important to remember that in the past, where we've seen massive disconnect. So this is not the case of a country deciding, well, we're going to tease ourselves away from the rest of the global internet. I'm talking about takedowns like the infamous Mikolo takedown, what was that, late 2000s, and others where sizable chunks of the cybercrime ecosystem, like, say, a big room full of spam servers, all went off the air at once. Whilst generally we might see in Sophos Labs a reduction in, say, spam volume as an immediate result, even in the most dramatic takedown cases like the Mercolo one, it didn't take long for the volume just to ramp back up to where it was before, did it? No, and, you know, that there's been all kinds of cases of different bulletproof hosting solutions and things like that over the years that have been taken down using a myriad of methods. Maybe you disable their infrastructure Maybe in some cases, uh, I believe some of these hosts were uh, literally just removed from the routing tables, like the entire ISP was considered a bad apple and just taken out. But if there's enough demand and there's profit to be made offering a service or performing uh, a crime uh, for that matter, generally, there's somebody waiting in the wings more than willing to take the, the roles of the people who may no longer have access. So even if Russia was entirely isolated and nobody there was able to get a, a bit or a bite in or out, there's no reason to believe that the two people of the 30-person gang that no longer are accessible wouldn't just be replaced by uh, um, some new people and or there might be promotions within the crime organization to now serve those roles. And in the same way that if the crooks are planning to 
ransom you for data. They don't need any bandwidth to upload the data. They don't have to upload the data. All they need is some way of getting, what, 16 or 32 bytes of decryption key they can sell back to you. And even if they do want to steal your data, then they don't tell your computer to send it back to wherever they happen to be in the world, do they? They use a cloud storage network or a content delivery network to upload it to somewhere that they can download from anywhere they happen to be. Oh, precisely that. And in their case, they're usually not interested in the data for their own use anyway. They're using it for extortion. They just need to post it somewhere on the dark web. It doesn't need to go back to the country they reside in. And I mean, even when we make this podcast in a weird way, that that can work this way, right? Like I can post this file on a server here in Canada that's at my house, but I often post it to a service like OneDrive because it'll be on a CDN in the in the UK and your downloads at your house will be that much faster to put the podcast together. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the future holds with regard to internet accessibility in Russia, but I think it's fair to say where there's a will, there's a way. Indeed. In fact, I would like to conclude this section, Chester, by quoting the last line of your article on Sophos News. The best time to update your security strategy is always the same, colon, now. Cybersecurity really is a journey and not a destination, isn't it? Well, I think it's a good opportunity. If you've got attention from your management, um, they're worried about these issues or they want to know what the impacts are going to be, take advantage of that attention, update those security policies, update your strategies. If you can get some budget, accelerate your programs. Don't miss the opportunity when it's there. Uh, but really, things haven't changed. We need to do the same things and we need to be on our feet and we need to be watching for compromise. Okay, Chester, I think that's a great place on which to end. Once again, thank you so much for stepping in while Doug is on vacation. So thanks to you. Thanks to everybody listening. And as usual, it remains just for us to say, until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.